Welcome back to the Daily Devotion. My name is Kevin. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Conway, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America here in Conway, Arkansas. The Daily Devotion is a time for us to be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. Right now, in our study of Scripture, we're working our way through 1 Peter, this great letter that Peter wrote to suffering Christians in order to encourage them and comfort them with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with his victory for them. And it's a particular comfort to us as well because what we find again and again and again as we look at this letter is that our current situation, no matter how bad it may seem, no matter the suffering we face, isn't what speaks the truest word about us. Rather, the finished work of Jesus Christ is what speaks the truest word about us and our eternity and our security before the living God. And so we're reminded of that. We're reminded that, that, that we are kept by God, that we are strengthened by him, that Christ has gone before us, that Christ has gained victory for us. That's what Peter is trying to, to do in this letter, to comfort and encourage those who are suffering in the faith with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, which are some of the most difficult verses in the New Testament to wrestle with and to try to figure out, we need to keep that in mind. So that's what we're going to do today. We've already begun this journey looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 the other day, and today we're going to look at verses 19 and 20, and then tomorrow on Tuesday we'll pick up 21 and 22. We're breaking this up because this is a difficult section and there's a lot that goes into how we think about this. So let me pray for us and then I'll read these passages and offer a few comments. Father, we thank you for your word and I ask that you would now by your spirit strengthen me that I may faithfully proclaim what your word proclaims in order that we all together might be strengthened in our faith in Christ. It's in his name we ask this. Amen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, even just that a, a bare reading of this text, it's easy to go, ah, yeah, okay, I see why this might be a challenge. And the reasons are because as we come to this passage, there, there are all of these phrases that can point in a thousand different directions, it seems, and, and oftentimes point us in a direction that gets really uncomfortable for us for a number of reasons. It's, it's like coming to one of those signs at some famous landmark where they'll have a signpost with, with signs that point to, you know, Moscow and London and New York and Chicago and, you know, Seoul or, you know, wherever, and you look at it and it's hard to make sense of the sign because things are pointing in so many different directions. And in fact, if you didn't know where you were standing, it would be quite difficult to make sense of the sign. 
You would have to, to, to get back to where you were standing. You would have to have literally a, kind of a global knowledge of the position of cities in order to discern where you are. There, there's knowledge needed in order to interpret that sign. Well, this passage is very much the same way. If we come to this passage just with our knowledge of kind of 21st century Christianity, we find it mostly only confusing. And in fact, a number of translations that we've come, come across is, as, as you study this passage are, are, dealt, are, are dealing more with our desire to either not be Catholic and so stay as far away from any Roman Catholic interpretation of this passage or, or implications of this passage as we possibly can, or our implications are to try and make our Christianity make as much sense as possible to modern readers. And so we, we oftentimes end up demythologizing certain passages. Well, neither of those concerns were the concerns of Peter. He, he was not concerned with not being Roman Catholic. That wasn't even a category when he existed. He also was not concerned with making sure that his Christianity was palatable to a modern reader. Again, not a category that was around when Peter was around. And so Peter is writing in a context that is very, very different than ours, that is much more comfortable with the realities of mythology and with bringing such ideas into Christianity and letting them stand there. And that doesn't undo the historicity of Christianity by any stretch of the imagination. What it seems is behind what's going on here is a lot of ideas and, and stories and, and ways that in, you know, first century Judaism and in ancient Judaism that, that the story of Noah had been used fairly commonly. We look at the book of Enoch, for one, and, and see that there's a lot of overlap with how Peter and Jude talk about the story of Noah and how we find it represented there. As I've worked through this, I've come to realize that one of the most helpful articles is an article by a guy named R.T. France, where he walks through this. And I'm largely following him here. And as we look at this, here's what we have. We've already argued that, that he was put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit. So we're talking about the resurrected Christ, which incidentally is exactly what Peter is talking about in verse 21. That this appeal through baptism is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, in which, this first phrase of verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. These words in verse 19 are, are exactly where we start getting confused. Did he go in the spirit? Or, or was it in, in the power of, of what happened? Did he go between death and resurrection? Or was it post-resurrection? Exactly when did he go? All of these are questions that get asked. Or, or did he go in some kind of pre-incarnate way? When, when did this happen? How did he go? What's going on there? Who, who are these spirits that are in prison? What does it mean for spirits to be in prison? Are these people? Are these angels? What, again, what exactly is going on? Well, when we begin to put this all together in light of the context in which Peter undoubtedly would have been thinking there's two things that we need to keep in mind. One is just the context of what Peter is doing. 
He's been talking uh, throughout this book, but especially in the, the most recent verses about the reality of Christ suffering, saying something to us that is comforting about our suffering, and that his victory through suffering says something to us that is to comfort us about our suffering. Incidentally, this is exactly where he goes at the end of this section. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 1 Peter 4 verse 1. So the context of this is that somehow Christ's suffering and victory through suffering says something to us about our suffering and the victory that is to come through suffering. We should give Peter the benefit of the doubt and assume that here in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 through 22, he has the same idea in mind. And so somehow what's being read here is not an excursus on some random theological point, but is in line with what he's already talking about. The second thing that we need to keep in mind is that Peter is well immersed in uh, the, the ancient thoughts, the, the ancient understandings, the, the ancient ways of talking about their faith, and the ancient understanding of passages like the story of Noah that begins in Genesis chapter 6. And so when we put all of this together, what we end up with is that Christ, resurrected Christ, has gone to these spirits, probably in Peter's understanding, angels that have been imprisoned waiting for their judgment. Another key factor. In the ancient world, unlike today, prison wasn't the punishment. It was where you waited for punishment. Today, prison itself is the punishment, and so we look at this and we're like, ah, oh, they've been judged, but for the ancient reader, we would have, they would have read this and said, oh, they are waiting to be judged, much like Paul when he was in prison. He was awaiting trial in prison. So, so we have these spirits, again, in, in Peter's mind, uh, in the ancient world, probably angels that have disobeyed, that they are in prison awaiting judgment, and in his resurrection, having been resurrected by Christ, having uh, by the Spirit, having come to victory through suffering, Christ goes and proclaims something undisclosed in these verses to these spirits that are in prison awaiting judgment. Well, if we look back, we see that he's going to put things to shame that have troubled believers, that, that he's going to to undo the struggle of believers, that he's going to claim the victory that he has claimed by his life, death, and resurrection. So he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Why? Because he's going to put them to shame. That's what we see happening here. The proclamation that, that is made if we look in the context, is in, in all likelihood, there's really not a lot of good reason to think this isn't what's going on. The proclamation that is being made is the victory of Christ over even these spiritual powers. Incidentally, this is precisely where this section ends. Talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Then Peter gives us the context of the story of the flood when these angels disobeyed. They took the, the, the sons of God in Genesis 6 
as angels that, that were stepping out of line. This is not common for our exegesis. We work very hard to get out of that understanding of Genesis 6. Perhaps we shouldn't. That's a discussion for another day. Peter is clearly in step with his contemporaries taking it that way. And so what we have here is that Peter is announcing the victory of Christ and that in his victorious resurrection, he has proclaimed to even the spiritual powers that sought to oppress men, he has proclaimed his victory over them. And just like those few, those eight, were delivered through the water or by the water, both are probably in view here, as R.T. France points out, so we Christians will be delivered because Christ has claimed victory. He has put them to shame. So going back, this is why he can say, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. What Peter is doing in these verses is comforting his readers, reminding them that the, the, the proclamation of the victory of Christ over those who would trouble us has been made. That Christ has claimed victory. And that we partake in that victory in him. That's the hope that Peter is extending to his readers ancient and modern. Christ has claimed victory and we can be comforted by that victory. We'll continue looking at this passage when we come back on Tuesday. Until then, may we rest in the victory of Christ. Mm -hmm.